Please take your Bibles, if you will. Turn with me to the book of John, John chapter 13. Today we're going to be looking at the very end of that chapter, the last four or five verses, verse 36 to 38. Uh, and then we'll also be looking at all of chapter 14 today. It's a large chunk. But this pass- passage constitutes what commentators call part one of Jesus' farewell discourse. And so we're going to try to consider this part one all in one go. However, to make it more manageable, we're going to read it actually in two parts. We're going to start with John chapter 13, and we're going to begin at verse 36 in this first section. We'll read down to chapter 14, verse 11 in just a moment. And as we read this, let's remember that this is God's word, which is speaking to us today. John writes in John chapter 13, beginning at verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. May the Lord bless preaching of his word in our midst today. Well, there's a phrase in the fitness world. I'm still trying to decide if I believe it or not. It's called short-term pain, long-term gain, right? That's, that's a thing that goes around. And anyone who has ever suffered through a three-set workout or sprints in the pool knows exactly what that phrase means. It means that the temporary feeling that your lungs are going to explode 
or that your muscles might actually just physically give out and never come back. That feeling is supposedly, eventually, going to turn into some long-term gain to be well worth it after the fact. And if we actually didn't believe that, then our actions would show it, right? Gym, the gym would not be packed at 6.45 on Thursday morning if people didn't believe that, right? And there would be far, far fewer people on this sidewalk running up and down these hills on League Line Road if people didn't actually believe it. If you want to know if people actually believe that phrase, look at their face while they're trying to run uphill, right? That is a short-term pain. That's what I look like when I try to work out. They obviously and sincerely believe that that is going to be worth it in the end. Well, that phrase, short-term pain equals long-term gain, in a nutshell, is what this passage is all about. Because as we know, Jesus' hour is now at hand. This is a difficult moment for the disciples. These are, in fact, the last few precious moments that he's going to have with them leading up to his arrest. And while their week had began on the highest of highs, the world is now collapsing around in around them. First, Jesus has told them earlier at this same supper that one of them is going to betray him. That was a a bombshell in of itself, but it followed by another one. Just a moment earlier in John chapter 13, verse 33. Remember, he'd give, he says, I give you a new commandment, little children, to love one another. But that's not what they heard. Here's what they heard. Here's what they stuck out to them. Verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so I now say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. That statement from Jesus is where all of this picks up in verse 37. We can understand then the shock and the apprehension that that lies behind Peter's question. Verse 37, he says, Lord, where are you going? What prompted that question? Jesus had already told him, I'm about to leave and you can't come with me. So there's a fear, there's an apprehension that is settling into their hearts as they're coming to terms with it. Jesus is about to leave. He's about to be gone. And Peter wants to know, well, where are you going? And more importantly, I'm loyal enough. I've, been, I've followed you everywhere. I would follow you to the dying day. So why can't I go with you now? What he nor any of the other disciples could imagine yet, and what Jesus is trying to help them see, is that the departure of their master is going to result in ultimate good. It's going to result in ultimate good. It is short-term pain that will equal long-term gain. Specifically, his departure, which first and foremost, when we talk about Jesus' departure, we're talking about his crucifixion first and foremost. That took him away from the disciples in a very real sense. But even their reunion was temporary, right? Because then he ascended up into the clouds. And so they are separated from him in that way, too. So he talks about his departure. He talks, he's talking about all of that, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension back up into heaven. But what Jesus is trying to help them see is that that whole process, which is painful that it will be, and it will be that, is going to result in, in two gains in particular. We've summarized them this way. The two gains are kind of summarized in two points, and that kind of makes the two points of today's message. His temporary departure from his disciples and from this world means two things for the disciples. It means that we are going home, which is what we saw in verses 1 to 11. And what we're going to read about in the second half of the chapter in just a minute 
it means that home is coming here. It means that we are going home. Jesus' departure means that. But even more than that, or not even more than that, but immediately rather, it means that home is coming here. Now, if you've been around Christianity for any length of time, then you've heard verse 1. It's, it's probably familiar to you. And for good reason, because it's a wonderful comfort, right? Listen to Jesus' words there. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That is a wonderful phrase. It, we, we, we love that kind of phrasing, don't we? We have coffee cups that say faith over fear, right? That is a good thing. We, it is a good thing. It gets used a lot. But we have to keep the real world context of when Jesus said this. What is the setting that he said this to his disciples? Keep that in mind because that history takes this theme of faith over fear out of the realm of being vague, subjective, and theoretical. And it puts it very much, right? Because this is a very real world problem they're dealing with. This is life and death that they're facing. Their world is collapsing in around them. It takes it out of the realm of vague, subjective, and theoretical. And it puts it into the realm of personal, objective, and very, very practical. Because they needed this right now. They needed it right now. But what exactly does it mean, this phrase here, believe in God... Believe also in me entail. Well, to help them comprehend what he means, what does it mean to believe also in the Son, Jesus uses an illustration that the disciples can relate to. He talks about the Jewish custom at the time, which you may, be, which you may know. Once a couple was officially betrothed to be married, the husband-to-be, it was his responsibility. They'd officially, legally, in many ways, they were already married as far as, as far as the culture was determined. They weren't living together, but they were already married in that sense. The husband-to-be, though, would go away, and as fast as he could, a process that usually took about a year or so, he would make all the necessary preparations to get ready. Right? You had to get everything ready so that you could welcome your new bride into your home together, so you could have that relationship together. So on the wedding day, you had a place to go back to and, and a home that was established and ready. Well... Logic dictates that there's no way, and they understood this, there's no way that a groom is going to go through all the trouble of being legally married and committing to, uh, to uh, a wife-to-be. He's going to go through all the trouble of making preparations, and then he's going to skip out on the wedding. That, the logic dictates that would not happen. Not only would he permanently lose face in the community, he would lose that relationship, and he would forfeit every dollar he'd spent, and likely a lot more than other people's had spent, that he would be responsible for. He is not going to skip out on that. And Jesus is saying, this is the nature of my departure. This is, this is the heart behind my departure. This is the aim behind me leaving. Even though I have to leave for a little while, it's for a specific purpose. And I'm already anticipating the reunion, just like a groom who is counting down to the wedding day. Disciples, think this way. Anticipate that consummation as well. I will come back and take you to myself. But at the moment, the beauty of this metaphor, this is a very accessible illustration for them, but at the moment, its beauty is lost on the disciples. For our friend Thomas, and I love Thomas, Thomas is about as practical and as pragmatic a dude as there is. 
Like if you just go kind of trace all the things he says, he's about as materialistic. If I don't see it, I don't believe it, right? So he literally is going to say that. Unless I see it, I don't believe it, right? He's as practical and as pragmatic a dude as there possibly would ever be, right? I think we would be friends. He says, he chimes in. He says, okay, it's great that you're going somewhere and you think that we're eventually going to get there. But there's a logical problem that you have with that statement. Lord, we have to know where you are going if we ourselves are going to know how to get there, right? You have to know where you're going. If, if you were to pull up the maps application on your phone and say, get me directions, what would the first thing Siri would tell you? Where? Where do you want to go? That's the first statement, right? Then you tell, get me directions to, and then you enter the destination. Siri needs to know the destination before you're going to get any directions calculated. That's Thomas's point here. We need to know where you're going so that we can then make all the things that we need to do. That's, that, it's, it's, a logical, it's a logical step. However, it speaks volumes about the disciples' understanding of Jesus at this point. They still haven't fully grasped who he is. They still haven't completely understood where he came from, and they're not exactly sure what this whole mission that he is on is all about. Which is why Jesus reiterates in verse 6 what he's actually been telling them all along. This has been his message since day one to them. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is Jesus' explanation of how you're going to get where, how you're going to get home. How do you get home? I am the way. And if that claim from Jesus isn't mind-blowing enough, we're, we have relativistic ears in this culture, don't we? We have relativistic ears. So that claim for Jesus to say something as bold as that is mind-blowing to our ears. But consider for a moment, consider for a moment why he says that's the case. It, verse 6 is mind-blowing, but listen to how he spells out or why he spells out that should be the case in the verses that follow. L listen to this in just a rapid fire. This is why Jesus is the way. To know me is to know the Father, verse 7. To see me is to see the Father, verse 9. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, verse 10. And what is the rebuke he gives Philip? I've been with you so long and you still don't know who I am. Right? Right? Can we start to see the emphatic point that Jesus wants his disciples and us to get here? Who is he matters tremendously. That's why we as Christians can't just get on board with the extremely prevalent assumption, well, all roads are going to lead to the same place anyway. doesn't matter in the end. That's pretty prominent idea out there today, and it's not true. Christians can't get on board with that. Because for, to do so means nothing less than denying the very testimony, the clear testimony, the repeated testimony of Jesus Christ himself. He said, all roads do not lead to the same place. There's only one road to the Father. And let me add this in. To sacrifice the truth of who Jesus is, which is the only hope 
that this lost and dying world even has so that we can win applause or escape persecution is deplorable. It's nothing short of deplorable. Despite our culture's loud protests to the contrary, nothing could be more narrow-minded, unloving, or arrogant on our part than to put others in harm's way so that we can save our own skin. Jesus is the only way to God is the most loving thing we can tell someone. And it is most inclusive because anyone, whoever believes, gets to the Father. We're all in the same boat. All that Jesus promises us, the whole enchilada, hinges on his exclusive status as God the Son incarnate. And if that's not true, then none of this is. None of it is. You can't rip that part out and keep anything else here. That is the central claim of Scripture. But if it is true, if it is true, then those of us who believe also in Jesus have the greatest assurance possible of what the future holds. It means that even in the face of that cancer diagnosis, it means when spiritual opposition comes your way, it means when relational hurts stab, it means your eternity is never in question, not once. It means that when that sin comes again that you thought you were sure you were done with and you realize I've done it again. How could he forgive? Surely this time God is done with me. It means that your eternal security is not in question. Why? Because Jesus has gone to the Father and he has personally settled your account. He has to be the Son to walk in and do that. He's made all the necessary preparations. It's not your dime that's getting you in. But he's just getting started. He says, my departure means I'm, I'm getting everything ready. I'm, making all, I'm paying all the prices. But he's just getting started. For not only does his departure mean we are getting to go home, it also means that home is coming here. Pick up and read verse 12 on down to the end of the chapter. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live. You also will live. And that day you will know that I am in, the Father, in my Father. 
and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the rule of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise. Let us go from here. We notice a shift in focus taking place here, don't we? Jesus has begun talking, he started off talking about the future, what is to come in the future. And now he's beginning to shift to talk about what does it mean, his departure mean for the here and now. And it begins really with two curious statements from Jesus in verses 12 to 14. He says, first, whoever believes in me, will do greater works than I do because I am going to the Father. He'll ask the question, how in the world, when you first read that, your first thought is, how in the world is that the case, right? We've seen Jesus turn water into wine, multiply bread to, to feed thousands. We saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. How is it possible that we as his followers are going to do greater works than Jesus has? How do you top raising somebody from the dead? It's not, there's not a lot you go up from there, right? How do we do greater works than Jesus has done. And second, that's one curious statement. It's followed by another. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Almost sounds like tacking on, if we just say in Jesus name, just add those three little words. It's like the magic potion you put on the end of your prayer, right? Lord, help me win the lottery. Oh yeah. In Jesus name, right? (laughs) Right. You just add it on there and now he's got to do it. That's what it kind of sounds like when we, when we read these things. So how do we make sense of that? Let's take each of those one at a time, because the two are most definitely related. Listen to how scholar D.A. Carson answers the first question about doing greater works than than I. He says this, The signs and works which Jesus performed during his ministry could not fully accomplish their true end until after Jesus had risen from the dead and been exalted. Only at that point could they be seen for what they were. By contrast, the works that believers are given to do through the power of the Spirit after Jesus' glorification will be set in the framework of Jesus' death and triumph and will therefore more immediately and truly reveal the Son. 
That is the greater work. It is a not raising people from the dead physically, but raising them from the dead spiritually because people now can see more clearly this side of the cross and through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That that is the greater work is the work of evangelism. That is the greater works that God the Son has given us to do. And didn't Jesus' promise come true? Wasn't it the case that more people heard and responded to the message of Christ through the apostles after he was gone than even responded to Jesus when he was here? How could that be? Why is that? It's certainly not because these apostles were more compelling preachers than Jesus was. I can guarantee you none of them were. None of us since are anything like Jesus, right? So that can't be the case. How is that the case? It's because that even though Christ has been no longer physically walks this earth, his reign here, his reign on earth, has now been inaugurated through his death and resurrection. That's how that's the case. And it is even now his reign being extended to the ends of the earth through the church's gospel witness. That is the greater works that we are getting to do. We call it missions. That is the greater works. And that is also what it means to then pray in Jesus' name. It's to ask for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's it's to ask for new communities and new hearts and new minds that have been regenerated and brought to life through the Son, through the preaching of the gospel. Commentator J. Ramsey Michael explains it this way. What is the reader to make of such promises of answered prayer? The promise here is notable for what it does not say. Jesus does not invite his disciples to ask whatever you want, but to ask in my name, a phrase that seems to mean, as it's a phrase that seems to mean as if I were asking or ask what I would ask. It's not a matter of an individual's personal whims or desires, but get this but of bringing to realization all that Jesus wants to accomplish in the world. That is what it means to pray in Jesus' name. In summary, bringing to realization all that Jesus wants to accomplish in the world. That is why we have every incentive to do what we do week by week in here and pray for the lost around us. That that is why we have every incentive to pray with our gospel partners the cowards and sovereign grace churches and, and, and the, the havens in Egypt. We have every reason to pray with our gospel partners around the world. Why? Because we know those are new covenant prayers. They are bringing to, bringing to realization all that Jesus wants to accomplish in this world. That's why I want to be praying these prayers. Christ hears them and he will answer them. It, it is one of the gains that we have this side of the cross, that we can ask for great things from God. But notice something amazing here. It's not as if the disciples' relationship with Jesus is going to change into some long-distance you know, uh, relationship. This is, not no, this is now not a long-distance relationship. It's not like one of those things where you do the long-distance call, you don't do it anymore. I know it's all cell phone, WhatsApp, and everything else. But it's not like one of those where you talk, you know, we had the long distance relationship. You see how long that lasts, right? First you talk every day, and then you talk every other day, and then that relationship begins to slowly fade over time because of the distance, right? That is not the relationship 
that Jesus is going to have as his disciples in this new era. Quite the opposite, in fact. Their connection to him is about to become closer than it has ever been before the cross. His departure is going to mean their connection is closer to him than ever. He says, if you love me, and the assumption is they do because they're going to miss him when he's gone, then that love while I'm gone is going to show up through you continuing to obey my voice. It is still going to be present and you're still going to be obeying me just like I was here with you, just like I was walking through the week with you, just like we have been doing for all of this time. You will continue to be a people who are obeying my commands. And I'm going to ask the Father to give you another helper, the Spirit of truth, to dwell in you. And through his work, believers will feel and experience the presence of the Savior in this world, right now. Not not fully yet, not fully, but truthfully and really, genuinely. The experience of Christ in this world. Listen to how reassuring this promise is in verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. So even in the interim, even when I even in the interim when I'm gone, in between when I leave and when I come back, even in that stretch, even though you know I'm coming back, but even in that prolonged waiting, you are not going to be by yourself. And, and I'm not just sending some general person. I'm sending God himself. God the Spirit. And he's going to come and he is going to dwell in your midst. I'm going to come to you. He says, I will come to you. Could, could there be a better, could there be a more assuring thing that you can hear this week than that? I will come to you. Where are you going to be this week that you're going to feel all alone? And then you hear that voice in your head that says, I will come to you. What does it mean? What does that phrase mean? Author F.F. Bruce asks and answers the question. He says this, What aspect of his coming, Jesus' coming, is signified here? If the references to his resurrection appearances, they were brief and temporary, although they did bring the glad assurance that he was no longer dead, but alive forevermore. If the references to the realization of his presence through the Spirit, that would fit well with his promise they would not be bereft of support, for the Spirit would be their supporter. But we must see a reference also to his words in verse 3, I'm coming back again and I will take you to myself. So when Jesus says, I am coming to you, every phase of his promised coming is embraced in this assurance. It means all three. It means I'm coming to you. You'll see me alive after I've come back from the dead. It means you will, I'll be present with you through the Holy Spirit. And it means I will come back and take you to myself. All three, the fullness of God, will be present with his disciples even after he is gone. And if the apostles got to see Jesus alive after his resurrection, we are those. We are those who get to have a present relationship with Christ. To see him, he says. You will see me, he says. Well, he's not physically here. How's that going to be the case? He says, you will see me. We are those who have a present relationship that we can see him with the resurrected Christ. Why? Because it's mediated to us by the Spirit, and that is central. The Spirit's mediating work of us seeing Christ even now in this world, a fallen, broken world, 
Spiritual eyesight, being able to see the unseen. That is what he's talking about. That, that we will see the realities that he's talking about here at work, in our lives, around us in our homes, and, and in the places that we go on a day-in and day-out basis. We, the, the very presence of heaven in our midst. Not seen by the world, not discerned by the world, spiritual eyesight. That is central to the spiritual life, both our individual spiritual lives and to our corporate spiritual life together. Acts recounts for us how the Spirit was the catalyst in the early church's vitality, unity, and clarity. It was as if Jesus was right there in their midst. That's what we see in the coming of the Spirit. And yet, sadly, the edifying and enlivening ministry of the Spirit is not something the modern church seems to understand or, sadly, even care that much about. It's sad. We can so easily live in an independent state of mind, an independent way of life, that the Spirit's absence in our lives during the week or in our gatherings on Sunday, if He wasn't here, it wouldn't make that much difference. But remember this. Jesus told His disciples... It's to your advantage that I go to the Father. How could he say that unless there's an even deeper and richer experience of his own testimony and ministry that is meant to be experienced in our daily lives through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? How can he say it's better that I'm even not there? That's a startling statement. Unless there is a deeper and richer experience of his his own ministry, Christ's own ministry and testimony, to be experienced in our daily lives through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Listen, why is the church in America so spiritually weak and anemic? Why is that the case? Certainly it's partially due to little or bad Bible teaching. That's partly the case. But we have access to more Bible study tools and greater preaching than any generation in history. Let's just be real. You can listen to John Piper this week, all week if you wanted to, every day. Not a lot of people have had that chance in church history. So a lack of knowledge can't shoulder all the blame for our shortcomings. What then is the primary reason? I would argue strongly that it is a lack of earnestly seeking and studying the Holy Spirit's present ministry in our world. Jesus is trying to help them understand that. He's helping them try to see the point of them depending on the Holy Spirit who is to come. You ever seen those Capital One bank commercials? I think they, I think they come out, they say, like, With zero, we have zero fees, you know, we, we don't do overdrafts, we have no minimums, you know, that kind of thing. This is the greatest banking place ever. He says, it's the easy, to switch to Capital One, I think the, the tagline is, to switch to Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Right? If you've ever watched football games, you know those are on. Switching to Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, which is quite a statement. And then they say, it's so easy, is it even really a decision? Like, is it even a decision to be made? Well, the same case could be made for believers like us who are blessed enough to live on this side of the cross. Given that the Spirit is no less God than the Father or the Son... And given that he has been sent here for the express purpose of helping you this week, 
shouldn't seeking a deeper fellowship with him be at the very top of the Christian's to-do list ahead? Shouldn't that be the very first thing this week that you should be about? I want a deeper experience to that. Isn't that actually the easiest decision in the history of decisions? It's so easy, is it really even a decision? Why would we neglect the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Listen to how our Sovereign Grace Statement of Faith puts it. The Spirit also desires, He desires, to fill God's people, not intermittently, but continually with increased power for Christian life and witness. To be filled with the Spirit is to be more fully under His influence, more aware of His presence, and more effective in His service. All Christians, therefore, must continually seek to be filled with the Spirit by living and praying in such a way that invites the Spirit's work among us, actively longing for God to accomplish His gracious purposes in and through us, which, by the way, you notice in how he says, if you ask anything in my name, notice how these things are starting to work together? The filling of the Spirit brings to God's people a deeper knowledge of Christ, an increased desire for holiness, a stronger commitment to unity and love. By the way, if you have my commands, you will do them. You, you, they, they will know this, that you love one another. You, know, you see how these themes are starting to come together in the ministry of the Holy Spirit? A stronger commitment to unity and love, a greater fruitfulness in ministry, and a deeper gratitude for our salvation. So let us ask, what is your experience of God like this week? What is your present experience of God like? Are you increasingly under his influence? Uh, under the influence of his word, especially. Aware of his presence. Effective in his service. Or does that all sound very foreign to our ears? If we step back and took stock of our lives, would it be obvious that Christ has personally come to us and is dwelling in our lives and in our midst? Or would it look more like we are anxious and abandoned orphans who have been left to figure it all out by ourselves between the first coming and the second coming? What would be the testimony of our week, of our months, of our years? Will we look like those who are being filled with Christ himself in our midst? Or will we look like these poor orphans who are scrambling for scraps? That is not God's intention for his people. That is not why Jesus departed. And it's why he ends this first part of his farewell discourse right where he began it. Peace, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them. That means you got to talk to them, right? Our hearts are naturally troubled. Our hearts are naturally afraid. You can't listen to them. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them. Who has the power to tell your own heart, don't be afraid? The Holy Spirit can help you. Do not let it be afraid. That takes discipline, doesn't it? I am not going to let my heart be afraid. You can't do that in your own will. You cannot do that. Jesus can in you. These are some of Jesus' final words. And they're given to fearful, weak, overconfident, 
impulsive, I would die for you. I'm going to deny you. Peter, you're going to deny me before the sun comes up. It's given to people who are doubting. Thomas, what are you talking about? We don't know. It's given to people who don't get it yet. Philip, have you been with me so long? Philip says, just show us the Father and we'd figure this whole thing out. It's given. I love that all of them are speaking up in unison. We have no idea what you're talking about. It's given this testimony, this, this message is given to people just like you and I. It's given to disciples like us. And Pastor R.C. Sproul captures the richness of Jesus' message this night when he writes this. I do not believe there could be a legacy from Christ greater than his peace. Not a peace such as the world gives, a fragile peace that can be ended any moment by new acts of hostility, but an eternal peace that can never be disrupted. Because such peace is his legacy to his beloved disciples, Jesus could say to them again, this is the second time he said it, right? He could say to them again, this is the book ending Both sides of this discourse, farewell discourse, part one. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. What a legacy Christ has left us. Yet I would be remiss if I didn't say this. Scripture also makes it abundantly clear. There is no peace for those who are apart from Christ. If you've never placed your faith, your trust in the Lord Jesus to save you, there is no peace right now for you. Let's be clear on that. You are still an enemy of God. You're still at war with him. And you are under his white hot wrath in the gravest of dangers. And as sinners that we are, none of us is going to walk up to a holy God. None of us is going to come to the Father in our own way or in our own strength or in our own righteousness. That's a a fool's errand. Jesus is the only way of salvation there is because he is the only mediator who has made peace between God and man. He died to pay the penalty for your sin, and he lives so that you can be reconciled to the Father and filled with the Spirit. So you can know God and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, his whole triune self. And so I urge you this day to take hold of the promises that Jesus makes this night. Pray in his name for the Spirit to spring his words to life in your own heart and mind. Surrender to his lordship. Ask for his forgiveness and resurrection life, which he won for you. And see if his everlasting peace, the very shalom of God, doesn't flood into your soul this very hour. You can call on the name of the Lord Jesus today and you will be saved. Brothers and sisters, for those of us here who do not who do know Christ rather, or maybe you're walking through a dark night. This night keeps getting darker for the disciples so far, isn't it? It's about to get worse. But maybe you're walking through a dark night just like these disciples here. You're experiencing that short-term pain. Perhaps it's the pain of loss and and grief. That's a pain that doesn't go away, does it? It stays. 
Perhaps it's the pain of suffering and trial. Perhaps it's the just weariness of living in a sin-wrecked world. Day in and day out grind. May you absolutely 100% be certain of this. Jesus knows your pain. He cares deeply about it. Even in the short term, and he is personally present with you in it. Through the outpouring of his spirit. And he will bring it to an end. Once and for all. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Hasten the day, Lord. I will come again and I will take you to myself. Not just to a place, to a person. I will take you to myself. That where I am, Peter, you can't follow me yet. But you will afterward. That where I am, person who's saint who's walking through that trial who doesn't think there's an end in sight that where I am there you may be also that's a quote from Jesus of Nazareth short term pain isn't it disciples are about to experience more of it Jesus has more to say to them couple of chapters. We're going to get to them. Chapters 15 and 16. And then the sweetest part of it all. Verse 17. Chapter 17. Before he leaves, Jesus doesn't just teach him. He's going to spend the last hour that he has. His his last hour as a free man on his knees. Pray. Lord, make all this true that I just told him. He's going to do that for us too, is it not? Amen. Amen. What a Savior we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we see your glory in the work of Jesus Christ. We've seen it all along. We've seen it through this whole book. We've seen it every step of the way. His power, his love, his patience, his goodness, his wisdom. Every, every aspect of who you are is fully on display in the ministry of Christ. But even in these final hours, it seems as if we see it in richer and clearer and more vivid ways as we get closer and closer to the cross. Lord Jesus, thank you for opening up your heart to the disciples this very night. And thank you for opening up your heart to us right now in this moment so that we can know you and walk with you. Thank you for sending your spirit to help us commune with you and to, and to live out these truths that we would obey your commands, we would obey your voice, that it would be obvious that we believe that our short-term pain in this world is going to result in long-term gain, that people would look at our lives and say they truly believe that. 
And I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you. I pray, Lord, that they would not try to go any other way. They'd not try to climb in the wall to get into the kingdom any other way. They would go through the gate, the door, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray today would be that day they would enter that door. I pray for anyone here who is walking through that hour of trial. It's just it's deeper and darker than it's ever been. I pray that your voice would be speaking to them right now. Your presence and the power of your spirit would be powerfully at work reminding them that you have not left them as orphan, that you have come to them through the work and the mediation of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that our church family would be filled in the days to come with gospel witness, praying in your name, asking for your kingdom to come and your will to be done, and experiencing the fullness of the Spirit as we walk together as a local church. We pray this all for the glory of Jesus. Amen.